This is the third part of our interview with David, the founder of Eduflow, and we're uh, deep into the Eduflow story at this point. So if you haven't listened to episode one and two, you should go and check them out. It's a really, really fascinating story. And in this episode, we're going to talk about how um, PeerGrade was uh, pivoted into Eduflow and how David and the team kind of worked their way towards the awesome, profitable company that they have today. Yeah, let's dive in. We started to see a handful of different problems arise in this mm. venture thing that we were doing, right? One of the things we saw was like that there was not enough market pool for peer feedback software for our appetite. Um, when we when somebody wanted to buy peer grading software, we were this, the chosen vendor. We would always win the, the tender process or whatever. But there was not enough universities that needed this. And when they did, it, it often took a while to purchase it, right? So I looked at some of our contracts and it was like a two-year sales cycle, which is kind of, that's too long mm-hmm. uh, for, for selling a, a new license. Um, so that was one problem. I, I would have to go do this pedagogical pitch, then introduce the peer grade idea in 45 minutes in. Then they would say, oh, that's super interesting. I would like to pilot this next fall. And then next fall, we would do a, a free pilot for a semester. Not like a 14-day trial, but like a six-month trial. <laughs> and then they would do a bigger Jeez. pilot. It was like a total nightmare to sell to these uh, institutions. It was extremely long sales cycles, but zero churn. So it was like good and bad, but we wanted to grow faster. Yeah. Um, mm. The other thing we saw was that when we closed University of Copenhagen, then you have all these people who could, you think, oh, we sold to all these people. But then only a small percentage of the teachers there would actually use peer feedback as a pedagogical idea. So they would only be the ones that could use peer grade. And then of those people, they would use it maybe three times in a year because there were three mm. big assignments or whatever. So like the total amount of users versus like the daily active users was very far from each other. Mm. And that was dissatisfying for us product people to look in mix panel or whatever we were using back then and see like almost nothing happening. Yeah. So like revenue wise, it was going pretty well, but it wasn't very satisfying to be such a small part of their lives and their day um, because we felt like we were building a good product. But right. the problem was we had to sell pedagogical methods here and not software. And we weren't the right team, I think, long term for like really scaling that. It was just, it's just very hard. It takes a long time. So then those were the things we were seeing in the market. And then at the same time, we kept getting feature requests in peer grade that were kind of like peer grade, but not really. So you can do peer feedback. What about uh, teacher feedback? What about feedback to yourself? What about instead of giving feedback to other people's work, you could give feedback to your group members on how good group members they were. What about, and like we would see a ton of this and we would see people being like, oh, can we change the deadline system to be a little bit more flexible and so on. And we can't, we racked up technical debt for a long time, right? So eventually we were like, what if we started over and we built peer grade again, um, but we built it in a, in a slightly more flexible, modular way so that we can solve all of these feature requests at once instead of building it on top of each other, like more and more checkboxes, right? It was a horrible interface to work with. And then at the same time, we branched a little bit out of uh, education into more corporate because if you can 
modularize it a little bit, you could do things that are not necessarily peer review, but just instructor review or just self review or just. I think guess what started this was actually Inset Business School. They were a customer of PeerGrade, and they said, "Oh, we really like PeerGrade. Can we have uh, assignments in PeerGrade where there's no peer grading?" And I was like, "What the hell do you mean? <laughs> Why would you use PeerGrade for not peer grading? <laughs> this makes no sense, right?" And they're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, but we have four assignments." And we only want peer grading on the last one, but we want to have them all in the same system. And I said, yeah, I guess you could set the number of reviews to zero and then the deadline to like 10 years from now. Then there's no peer review, kind of, but like the interface is kind of funky and like it doesn't, it's not good, but it works. And they're like, oh, it's perfect. We'll do this. And I was like, okay, this is a good sign that we need yeah. to fix this, right? It's That's like people are really yeah. hacking the product here. That's a cow path, right? So that's that's where you've paved the university, yeah. and then you see just these worn, <laughs> grassy lanes, and you're like, "What are you yeah. doing? Like, I'm setting it to zero. Why would you do that? Well, it's better." It makes no sense. Yeah. Uh, so we saw a ton of this, right? And people who would like try to hack the product to do different things. We're like, okay, we start over. We build peer grade 2.0 is what we called it back then. So we can solve all of the same things and a lot more. And it would be a little bit more useful for these corporate learning people at the same time. And then when we started going down this route, this was in like 19, um, we got more and more excited about kind of some of the things this would allow us to do. And, and eventually we decided that this would be a new product that would not be a peer grading product, but we would start by building it to have a feature match with peer grade. So Edgeflow would be like a, more generalized version of peer grade, but we would build all the peer grade components first. So you could like move all the old users to, to Edgeflow, as we called it, right? And then sunset peer grade and then brains and, and do more things on, on Edgeflow. Like in the end. Does it sound familiar, Matt? <laughs> Rebuilding this, your product. You bur- yeah, you buried this gem. I, I didn't realize how much uh, we had in common uh, in a way. Like rebuilding your product, but realizing that. Actually, what I'm curious about and make is, it more flexible and rebuild your V1 and your V2 ex- yeah, with the exact, new building blocks. <laughs> that that was where I was going to go. It's like, yeah, were you? Um, that's a really exciting moment, right? Where you have all this knowledge about all your knowledge now that you didn't have when you built the foundations. You know that you're currently struggling with and have all this technical debt, but it's also depending on how big your company is and, and how, how willing you are to make that switch. I mean, that is, that's a bet, bet the farm kind of choice. I mean, at least if it consumes you. So like, how did you, yeah, how, how uh, internally, how easy was it for folks to go? That sounds great. We should definitely do that. Or, you know, what did it take? Yeah. I think we three co-founders, we made the call, right. And the rest of the team just followed. Um, this was a good time for us, right? We had uh, revenue from Google, universities, and so on, which would not churn. Like, these companies never churn. All of our customers from seven years ago are still customers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then we just raised... So after YC, we raised a, a million and a half dollars. So we basically had a million dollars or something in the bank at this point. Um, and we knew a lot of things. And we had this, like, very strong team, right? They were like very high performing uh, product team uh, that we like aggregated over time. And we're like, okay, now we can actually afford to do this and take a massive risk. And the the final kind of deciding factor was we don't want to build a peer grading company. 
anymore. Like we just mm-hmm. we want to build something more fun for us. We don't owe anybody anything in a sense, and like it's our product, it's our, it's our life. It's our life. Let's just yeah. give it give it a try, and then if it fails, fuck it. Right then we failed. Um, if but we succeed, money, then yeah. we would rather build this thing than the old thing. Exactly, and and that's and, a interesting timing that you you did that after you raised. I don't know how long after, but in a sense, you were both, uh, maybe I, maybe it was a surprise to those investors. Maybe they didn't know. But it's also like, if you invest in something, sometimes you're thinking, I'm going to invest so they can do more of what they're already doing, right? In this case, it was, thank you. Actually, we're going to do something new. <laughs> but at the same time, the intent of their investment is to get a big upside. It's not to just get incremental return from a venture kind of investment. So you were doing right by them still by taking we were, a big swing we were right, right. and yeah. and we this was in 19 early 19 right and we got the yc money back in 17 so it's at least a year has passed from our seed round to this mm. moment and in that year i think the investors gave up on us right it was just not growing very fast peer grade mm. it wasn't it was it was growing like slowly linearly and it was not a venture thing for them so they would ignore my investor updates and be like this will never turn out to be a good investment but like it was a good investment i guess like, it's fine but I'm yeah. not going to spend time on peer grade. So we're like, okay, then we can, we might as well just like swing for the fences here and, and do something that, and this wasn't really the reason for it. We didn't want to build a venture case per se, but we realized a year after racing the seed round that the peer grade would never be a venture case. Mm-hmm. We, just, we couldn't find a way to make that work. Uh, Edgeflow in theory could easily be a billion dollar business. I don't think we will get it there. I don't think we're like, on the trajectory to make a billion dollar business but fundamentally this market uh, easily has multiple of those uh, size companies and our competitors are unicorns right so mm. um and okay that was actually the last thing here yeah. i guess we realized like we're a great product team or well, at least we think so right compared to sales and marketing what if we go into a market that's blood red and mm. we just there's so much existing demand and then we just yeah. out product them uh, because we feel like we never lost uh, deals on product. We always lost it because there was no deal to win, right? We had to drum up the Yes, demand. yes. So, so we're like, yes. just, just go there. It's like, there's all the searches already there. Let's just build a better product and then just steal some of that uh, latent demand in the market. You can almost feel sometimes those markets in terms of like you try the products and they just seem a little flimsy, a little uninspired, a little buggy. And you go, what's going on here? And people make products. Ultimately, it's like if you put the people and their hearts and souls together, you get this product experience. And if they're not in it, like maybe they can sell it really well, but they can't be who they aren't, right? And so you have this unfair advantage to be in this market where the products are there because they have this utility, this functionality that sells and they are really good at sales. But then, yeah, the idea that you can just jump in and out-product them. I mean, it sounds silly because you just got done saying you're small. it's a small team, etc. But, like, that matters less than the alignment and the, and the passion of the people that are making this stuff, right? And so, how big were you at and the I time? And I think, like, we had an unfair advantage again, right? If we had started from day one with Edgeflow in the market we're in now, we would never have made it, I think. Because mm. there is just... It's, we. In this blood red enterprise market, you need a lot of features. 
because a lot of our customers come with an Excel spreadsheet to buy software, right? 180 rows of requirements. And we just have to have a lot of features. Um, mm. And this time we were lucky because we we could afford to spend three years like not necessarily growing that much, like reinvesting and building this whole thing because we had the team, we had the funding, we had the customers already. So we had mm -hmm. the ability to kind of spend a lot of time digging a very big hole here. And then like finally, now we're getting out on the other side here, like three years into Edgeflow. Now it's really churning, right? And growing a lot faster. Awesome. Um, we just needed a lot of features, which kind of sucks, right? I, I hate being the guy who's like, we just need one more feature. But we really do, and uh, it's, it's kind of frustrating. Yeah, yeah. It's just, especially as a if you're a product oriented CEO or founder, and you can get in, you can get in trouble if you sort of position it as, "Hey guys, just around this corner, if we build this one feet more feature, we'll arrive." And I I think you almost have to say up front, like, "This is a very long road." You know, we don't know that it's just around the corner. It probably isn't, and so. You can make better design decisions actually up front about flexibility and how the products, how the data model is, the architecture, et cetera, just set yourselves up for being able to add lots of features without accumulating that technical debt because you don't want to end up bloated again, right? Or like this bloatware situation. So did you know that going into it that you're going to have to build this big thing and design accordingly? Yeah, it was very uh, architected from the beginning. So like... <laughs> One of the reasons I listen to this podcast and why I'm sponsoring is because I feel so much synergy with the Summit idea uh, mm. product-wise, right? I think this is never something we tell customers. My co-founders actually don't like it as well. But when I think about Edgeflow, I think of it as a programming language. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of like a no-code programming language for building courses. So yeah. the way Edgeflow works is that you have a course and a course consists of learning activities. And these sit in, in a list in the sidebar the activities you go through as a learner and you can reorder them. They can depend on each other. They can uh, pull data from each other and feed data into each other. Um, nice. So when you want to build a certain <laughs> experience, like let's say, okay, I want my students to submit something. So I make a submission activity. Then I want them to peer review those submissions. So I make a peer review activity and point to the submissions. And then, and you kind of build this little flow mm -hmm. and then you can, you can basically like think of it as programming languages. And what that means for me design-wise is that I want it to be easy to use. Like you should be easy to understand and it should be very expressive, right? If you come with a learning experience, I can build it for you in Edgeflow exactly the way it should be. Um, and that, that has been baked into the architecture. So every time somebody has a new feature request, somebody asks today, like, can I get a directory? Can I show my learners a list of the other learners? I'll say, yeah. We could build a learner directory activity because then the people who need that in their course, they can add it in. The people who don't need it, they don't have to add it in. Mm -hmm. uh, it's only there as a, a functional block if you need it. And then if you have a, every activity in Edgeflow has the same properties and attributes and so on. So we decided yeah. to build it this way from the beginning as a way to ensure that we would be able to scale this without making the product complex. Mm -hmm. And it carries into everything we do. That's when we make dashboards, we don't build dashboards, we build a dashboard builder. So you can build dashboards in the dashboard builder. So it's, it's always like this. <laughs> it's uh, so good. That I know, man. And it's, <laughs> it's so important because uh, 
especially as small teams, like you have to you have to go one level of abstraction farther, which is expensive up front. And if you don't know what you're building, it's really dangerous because you're actually building the wrong higher level abstraction that doesn't produce something of value, right? So it's a worthless, it's Esperanto, right? It's like, you have a language, nobody wants to speak it, right? Uh, but if you know what people want to express and you can figure out that grammar or that syntax and you can create these, um, it's interesting because the primitives, the atoms that you build, everyone knows object-oriented programming, a lot of object relational modeling, they're just tables, but this is a level farther of saying, you said functional blocks. Like I assume that the atoms of, and is it activities? Cause you've used that word a couple of times, but of EduFlow, they behave like they have a certain behavior that you can expect or how does, how do they sort of talk to each other? What's the linkage like between them? Yeah. So of course in EduFlow is a list of activities and activities are things that the learners go through and complete. So every activity has mm. a completion state. Is it open, locked, completed and so on. Mm-hmm. And then for every activity, every type of activity has its own behavior. A content activity just renders content that you can mark as complete. Mm-hmm. A submission activity allows you to submit a file or a video, and then once you submit, it completes itself. Mm-hmm. Um, a discussion activity is a small forum that you can interact with, and then you can mark it as complete when you've done your post or whatever. Nice. Um, and then each activity has, or every activity has the same concepts of it has, it can have prerequisites on other activities. It can have deadlines it can uh, be hidden or visible and so on. So every time you build a new activity, this is kind of the power, right? Um, then it inherits all these standard properties of other activities as well. So if I make a learner directory, then learner directories also have deadlines. So you can like, we have to look at the learner directory before April 4th. Or mm-hmm. you can say you, you can't submit until you've looked at the learner directory because it's an activity like all the other activities. So right. That's kind of that's why the power really appears. We just built yeah. um, plagiarism detection, for example, as an activity, which is oh. kind of a weird way to think about it. But hmm. that allows us to say things like, okay, but some teachers might want to show the plagiarism score to the students, and some people might want to hide it. Well, you can just show and hide the activity for learners. We don't have to yeah. think about do you want to show or hide plagiarism scores. That just comes for free because of the <laughs> general model we've built for for course building. So this gives yeah. us yeah. scaling advantages when building, but it also means that as soon as you realize like the three concepts that are play in EduFlow, you get the whole thing. Like, oh, now I get it. There's just, yep. that's mm-hmm. how an activity works. So now I know how all activities work. Yes. Um, but it does require some refactoring once in a while we'll realize, okay, this could be done smarter. Let's go back and redo it, right? Mm-hmm. This is where some of our competitors have broken by now. Uh, they have like the have same concept up. three times. Um, I looked at a competitor recently, and you could like have your learners in groups and in branches and in departments. And I was like, "What's the difference between a group and a department and a branch?" And they're all kind of the same, just slightly different. And that's the danger, right? So we try to keep keep the language simple and coherent, but very powerful. Um, and then some of that power comes from, okay, an activity, a list of activities then could be a course, but then you could have a list of those, a list. So you could have, you know, sort of a grand course or like, a, I assume you could, you could nest these things. You don't have to just be confined. Like courses can follow courses potentially. So maybe that's not part of the model itself, but then you could do an activity that's like move to next course activity. 
yeah sure sure so you can create like these once links you get to that activity it, it enrolls you in the next course for example it's um, powerful stuff like that so th so this must have um energized the team to start building uh i'm curious about taking you know you're talking about a long roadmap lots of features how recently did you sort of say we're ready for general general usage it's uh feature parity. We launched it immediately. We launched it after a few months, right? For like the first people and then we launched on Product Hunt six months in. It was terrible product, right? It was like, <laughs> it had nothing on any of our competitors. Like it was just a prototype. <laughs> we wanted to launch it. We launched it before it could do peer review, which is kind of frustrating for many of our customers and confusing. But we hmm. wanted to see if this had legs on its own without peer review. Hmm. Because we knew that if we launched a new peer review tool that was worse than our existing peer review tool, people would just go and ask for the same features we already had in peer grade. Um, mm. So we launched it without peer feedback functionality to test the concept of it. Um, people didn't hmm. really care. Um, so we just kept at it for a long time. Yeah. And then I think a year ago from today, we were quite frustrated. Like we were just getting a lot of no's in the sales demos because it didn't have the features we needed. And mm. um, so we sat down and made a list and at the end of last year and said, okay, these are the features we need to win sales uh, demos. And we don't have to build the perfect version of these things. We don't have to build all dashboards. We just need dash some dashboards. We don't need very well-functioning integrations. We just need to say yes to integrations when they ask about it on the demo. So we started building out like these minimum viable features that we need to get through procurement. Um, and we can really see that mattering a lot now. It's really mm. changed the growth. Um, so there was just like a handful of, or two handfuls of like things that we just need that are super boring, like dashboards and localization and, and these yeah. kind of things. But it's just... If you're a big company and you're buying software for like 10,000 people, you just need dashboards and yeah. you need APIs and you need all of this crap, right? But mm -hmm. and it's so irrelevant. Like it's about the learning <laughs> experience, you think, but like these yeah. buyers, they need all these other things as well. So, hmm. yeah. so that becomes a moat now in hindsight, which is nice, but you also have a better you have a passion for products and a product centricity about your team that's different than the rest of the market or competitors. I think from what you said in this space, right? Yeah, I think we built it the other way around than everybody else because all the other people that started here, they started with corporate learning and that mean they started with the dashboards and the reporting and all of that. Um, and then they uh, added yeah. the learning experience later. And that means it yeah. kind of sucks. It's like a yeah. reporting tool with learning in it and we're a learning tool with reporting around it. And you can really, really feel good. that. And our mm. customers can really feel that because we came from courses. We came from university courses where... The learning experience was all that mattered. Um, oh, yeah. So now we're getting we're getting attacked on the other side, but it's much easier now to build dashboards than, yeah. than kind of re-innovate on the core. Um, but have you managed to get uh, Google to use Edgeflow, or are they still using PeerGrade? Yeah, so Google uh, using Edgeflow. They were actually the f maybe the first customer to move to Edgeflow of all of our customers, which was kind of impressive. Uh, this was a bit of a like hard conversation, I thought. And they were like, we love Edgeflow. Well, this is a great idea. Let's build stuff on Edgeflow. But basically, like, we took a lot of the foundational work again. And it's like, we're going to build a new product similar to what we had before. You will 
help us with some of it, but then you'll transition quickly. And I think for them, they were also one of the companies that requested a lot of things that were hard to deliver on peer grade. Like a lot of their feature requests were like, ah, I guess we could do that, but it means like seven new toggles to enable this. Um, so True. they quickly started seeing some possibilities. And yeah. then Edgeflow is very flexible, right? Because of this like abstraction and, and like general model of building courses that Google kept getting internal use cases that they heard like, oh, we just heard that the partnerships team at Google wants to find software that does this thing. Can Edgeflow do that? And we're like, <laughs> no, but we could make it do that. Like, so we can build a new activity and this new thing. And they'd be like, perfect, right? We already have you as a vendor. You're already approved by security. And it's much That's easier amazing. for us now to pay you to build an extra feature on Edgeflow than to go and procure some new software. So we would kept ex we kept expanding what Edgeflow could do to solve new business problems inside Google, but it kind of just added to the programming language of Edgeflow, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I'm so glad is, I asked this question. This is actually really inspiring, I think. Yeah, this is like washing over me uh, because <laughs> you didn't just sell, you know, you didn't just sell a use case. I mean, maybe you did sell a use case, but you didn't build and ship a use case specific product you you ship something much more general that could solve that use case and then like you said you're already there so i'm, I'm trying to think of what this is like but it, it does feel more like a developer tool or an aws where before we go to another cloud vendor or another solution does aws have a feature that lets us store this kind of thing and if they do let's just start using that you know let's let's use it more instead of using a different tool I think about it as a Airtable, Notion, Trello. These kind of yes, like products yes. that in my mind, they're not really products. They're more like mental models. Like Trello mm. is boards of lists of cards. And yeah. Notion is pages of pages, more or less, right? They're just and selling then, data uh, structures. <laughs> Airtable <laughs> is just a relational yeah. database with an interface, right? And mm. what do I use Notion for? Everything. I have my, my wish list for my birthday in there. And I have like our meeting notes and... I have everything in there. And then I use Trello for all sorts of things. And then when a new problem appears in my life, I'm like, what what tools do I have where this fits in? Mm. Uh, and, and once you get good at Airtable, you start using Airtable for all sorts of funky things, right? And, and so mm. on. So Edgeflow, in a sense, is just another mental model tool. Because I saw some of our employees, it's like, hey, David, I'm using Edgeflow, by the way, for myself, for tracking my running progress. And I'm like, you're what? That makes no sense. And it's like, oh, but it kind of does. And I have all these activities with like my yeah. running. It's like, that's, that's awesome. incredible. Like, why yeah. would you do that? Um, yeah. And we use it internally for like, obviously for like onboarding our new team members. We also use it for meetings. So like async meetings, we run those in Edgeflow in our discussion activity. So great. We use it for performance reviews. So like people will submit what they did in the last quarter. Then they'll give themselves a review with a rubric. We'll do manager reviews with the instructor review activity. And like, so we'll use it for that. We like, It's just a tool that allows you to build a workflow mm -hmm. around learning and feedback. Learning progress and, and feedback, yeah. And that's super powerful because this is how we sell today, right? We don't sell Edgeflow that way because people don't go looking for mental models and, and general tools. They come with a use case. Like we want to do sales training. We want to do onboarding. And then they start with that use case. 
and they get to like Edgeflow, and then another problem appears, and they're like, oh, I can do that in Edgeflow, I guess. And now we're stuck, right? Now they can't get rid of us because we're like use case horizontal within the company and and we just like, we get taken up by multiple departments and for multiple purposes and so on. So that's our sticky factor and, and our real power, I would say. But it's unfortunately a little bit hard to sell up front. And that's the same with like Notion. What do you, what is Notion for? Like, what do you sell it as? It's like, oh, it's for everything. You can use it for everything. Yeah, it's which means nothing. Pitch, but it's so very it's, powerful, it's yeah. Yeah, um, this isn't about Summit, but I, I, this resonates a lot because Peter, one of our developers, uh, built a uh, nutritional calculator using Summit for his bike rides. And it turns out that the same objects that we were using to simulate like interest rates and you know a bank account balance, you just change the labels around. He's like, actually, this is um, this is calories, and this is like uh, calories based on something else. He's he basically create like this. This is like, I don't know what, I'm not a nutritionist, but he basically built this model that calculates like burn of these completely different things. It's like, oh yeah, these are just numbers and containers and the labels is like 80% of it. So of course you can do that, I guess. (laughs) But then taking things like this to market, you know, you on your homepage now, it says, uh, it used to say build an incredible learning experience. So I was looking at the Wayback Machine, uh, which is my favorite thing to do. And now it says, uh, I just had it actually, but now I'm in sign up, so I can't see it. Social learning at scale was the was the final yeah. bit of it. I think so. so. How did how how did you an easier, more powerful platform to manage social learning at scale? Broader, clearly more useful. Did you? F- we have to f- we have to focus on something, right? So the social yeah. learning is what we're trying to differentiate on. We're trying mm-hmm. to say to people, we're selling this as a training, learning and training tool, right? Not as a mm-hmm like bike ride calculator or whatever so so sure, it is, sure. that's the market we're going into and then we're saying okay there's 50 competitors here at least maybe 200 um we believe in online learning that's active you have to do something not just watch videos and take quizzes and we want people to learn together and because of our peer grade past that's kind of in there now peer grade was always social you would do things together and it was always requiring the learners to to do something, submit, give feedback, learn from doing. So now we're like, we're weirdly like the learning management system that has the most peer review functionality, but there's a very good reason for that because we had a whole <laughs> peer review product, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's a, that's just become very important today, like a pure a post-COVID, right? You have like people sitting at home trying to like take courses online and it's just very boring. So suddenly our pedagogical model kind of fits with that um so we're trying to double down on this social learning uh, idea but honestly a lot of our customers don't care about that they just want a nice easy to use tool that they can like build their courses in okay i think i just i just found it i was going to ask if there's sort of a uh, a reverse lookup here where you can basically i want to find a list of the courses that are available on or things that i can take and you have a courses and webinars like eduflow academy so is that essentially a marketplace or um no we actually don't have that so most of our customers use it for internal things like internal onboarding training and so on not so much for like people selling their courses edgeflow mm-hmm. academy is a really interesting uh, marketing strategy that we have where we yeah. build courses for our users and then that's the way they hear about edgeflow they take a course uh. about 
uh, teaching and learning in Edgeflow. That's where oh, they see it. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Got it. It's another way we use Edgeflow at Edgeflow. That's right. Yeah. Very cool. I think we have time for maybe one more thing. And I, I kind of want to know, um, you, you're profitable today, you told me, uh, which is awesome uh, for kind of like starting on the VC track and pivoting and everything and then like ending up uh, being profitable. But I, I kind of want to know how intentional that is and, and how you're thinking about that kind of going forward. Do you yeah. plan on staying profitable? I think so. Un, un, unless something changes, we'll keep going this way. We don't really want to raise any money. Um, profit, profitable is always a weird term, right? We are we choose to be not dying, I guess. Like we could hire more people, and then we wouldn't be make any money, and we could like fire everybody except Melda or CTO, and then he would be very profitable. Uh, he could run the company alone, right? It's software business. If you can keep the servers up and you can like do talk to the accountants, then the business will continue. Um, so, so we're always on the edge of profitability in a sense where we're just like maximizing the things we can do without dying. Um, so I think this is kind of a, a nice size for a company, 12 people. I don't think we, we could be 20 or 25 maybe, but I don't want to be much bigger than that. I think then I would rather sacrifice some of the potential size of the company. I don't want to. I don't need it to be a billion dollar business if it means a thousand people in the company. I'd rather have a hundred million dollar business for 25 people or something. That'd be much more valuable to me. Um, so I think the reason we've we've gotten here is also that we never really found a way to use capital efficiently, honestly. Um, investors would always like talk to us. We would get a lot of interest from VCs, right? And they're like, uh, do you want to raise capital? And we're like, for what? Like every time we hire salespeople, it doesn't really work. Every time we run ads, nobody converts. Like all the things that work are random and not things we planned. And we could definitely do more things, but capital will not really help us here. So if we raise money, we'll just waste it, honestly. So it's better to not waste it, I guess. Um, if we ever found like, okay, here's the cash machine, right? Here we put money in here and get money out here. We'll probably find a way to get some more capital but it doesn't seem to be very we don't seem to be very good at that uh, unfortunately how, how important do you think it was to the the whole journey that you got google as a customer like it feels like that's the most Essential. significant thing that ever happened yeah, yeah we wouldn't be here without google i think it's uh wow i think it's about and i think that's kind of my my strategy now it's kind of a lame strategy but just like don't die just like keep going because these random things happen much later than you think. And then suddenly something good happens, right? And you just have to be in the market for it to happen. Like we don't go after corporate learning. It, it like randomly pops up one day and we don't. And that's how all of our like successful inflection points have happened. It's just been like keep just doing good things and then suddenly something good happens. But you can't give up because then there's no way for it to happen, right? Um, and then... I guess like just be nice to people and like yeah uh, be happy be friends with your customers and so on that also helps a lot 